It was one of the forums this week when I, I just, it just hit me. This is such a God moment. And we're so thankful that the Lord has brought you guys. And, and uh, if you haven't had a chance to hear Adam, you will this morning. And you, I think, will sense like so many others have, have brought us to this point that he is the man for us at this time, at this hour. Good morning, everyone. It is great to be here with you today. So exciting for us. My wife, Jenny, and I, we've gotten to meet many of you this week, and it has been an incredible week. And I just, I just want to say a huge thank you to you and especially to your search team. Your search team is absolutely the best. Incredible people, wonderfully gracious and hospitable. Thank you so much for making us feel at home here. It is, it is a wonderful experience to get to be with another body of believers in Jesus Christ who care about the same things that we care about, are passionate about the same things that we are passionate about. And we have been able to see that every day this week as we've been here with you. You have been so gracious toward us. We are so thankful to get to know you and Pastor Don and John and their graciousness and their support and Nathan and Jason up here leading music. I am just so thrilled at the people that God has in this church. It is exciting. It is a God thing. And I am just honored to be here with you this morning. And I get to share with you about my story, my journey in life a little bit, and some things that God has laid on my heart to share with you. So what I want to do this morning is this. I know not everyone was able to come to one of the forums this week. And so maybe some of you have not had a chance to hear anything about my story. So I'm going to share a little bit of that with you this morning. Not the whole thing, because for some of you, this would be your third or fourth time hearing it, and that just gets boring. It gets boring for me telling it. But I know some of you want to know, who is this guy? And I can understand that. And of course, you want to know, what does God want to communicate through him? And I pray that you will get to hear both this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So you can turn there if you want to. We're not going to go there just yet because I have some introductory things that I want to share with you, especially about my story. I want you to get to know me a little bit this morning, so I'm just going to share kind of a little bit about my life. But as I do that, you're going to find out how it leads me here and how it leads to the talk that I'm going to give this morning and what Jesus wants to share with us from this passage in Luke. So let me show you something here. I grew up in the frozen tundra of Michigan. I spent 18 years there. Anybody from Michigan here? Any Michigan people? Just a handful. You are my people. I'm so glad you're here. You also left the north. Good for you. We made it out. See, in Michigan, most people would call that a snowstorm, but in Michigan, we just call that a Tuesday. That is just Another day of the week for us, eight months out of the year, it seems. That is what my state looks like. But I grew up there. I was raised by a couple of godly parents. Of course, they weren't perfect, but they absolutely were striving to raise us up by biblical principles, and I'm so thankful for them. I had godly grandparents, and my grandfather was a pastor. This is a picture that I found of my grandpa Perry one week ago. And this was him sharing the gospel. And I showed this to my mom. She came down this week to watch our kids while we're here. I showed this to my mom. She said, I've never seen that picture before. So I 
took a picture of it to share with you and then gave it to her. It's a very special photo to us. From my grandfather, I learned the gospel again and again and again. And by the time I was four years old, I had heard it many times because as he would do ministry, he would take me with him to go do ministry together. And so when I was four years old, I trusted Christ because of the ministry of my grandfather. And I understood the gospel and what that meant. Over time in my life, I went through periods of rebellion and I went through periods of great spiritual growth. I had incredible mentors in my life. At one time, I thought that I was going to go into business and maybe some kind of sports business or something like that. I was not following after Jesus at that point. I had just decided I was going to live life for myself and God had different plans. And so I had the privilege of experiencing several major injuries through sports that completely turned my life around. It did not feel like a privilege at a time, at the time. It felt like a tragedy. It felt like my life was crumbling down. But through that, God used those experiences to teach me what he wanted to do in my life. And I started to read books that my dad had around the house about theology, about the Bible, about Christian living, about ministry. And through prayer and study of God's word at that point, I believed that God was leading me to get the training of a pastor. So I went to Bible college. I got a certificate in Bible. I got a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. I got a master's of divinity and a specialization there in pastoral counseling. I got trained and trained and trained and trained. But with all of that training, with all of my mentors growing up, with all of the spiritual growth that God did in my life, there was one thing that I never really felt I learned. There was something that I saw all throughout Scripture, but it almost seemed like it was meant for a different time. It was something that I was not taught how to do in seminary. It was something that all my mentors, for as great as they were, they didn't really, they didn't really know how to teach this to me. And I saw it in God's word, but it almost seemed like maybe now it's a different culture. Maybe now we're too busy. There's too much going on. There are too many things for us to actually do this. And it wasn't until I started to get involved in overseas missions that I started to learn how to love my neighbors, how to neighbor. That's the title of my message this morning. You see, we can do a really good job of teaching the Bible in our churches and our seminaries, but we don't do such a good job of teaching about relationships and specifically how to build relationships with people who are not believers. That's not really something I learned well how to do in seminary or in all the training that I got. So when we got into missions, we were able to see how God was using us around the world to share the gospel with people, to build relationships with people halfway around the world. And it reminded me of Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. I knew from God's word that I needed to love my neighbor. What I didn't know was how to do it. What I didn't know was how to put it into practice. I could travel all the way around the world and share the gospel with someone and even build a short relationship with someone overseas. But walking across the street to my neighbor, I didn't really know how to do that. I didn't even know where to start. And it was actually on one of those mission trips that God changed my life in that way. And it set me on the journey that brought me here this morning. This is one of our year's worth of teams. 
right before they went out all over the world. And my wife and I are in that picture somewhere. You can probably spot us if you look really close. And we took these teens and college students and we trained them and we sent them around the world to share the gospel. And then we led one of those trips ourselves. And on one of those mission trips, God did a work in my heart. This is the spot. This is the place. It's a city called Udine in northern Italy. And I watched as our missions team was sharing the gospel with people. Sometimes hundreds of people would gather every day to watch us perform. And then we would go out and share the gospel with people. And I had just preached in a church service that week where a family got baptized after a missions team from the previous year had led them to the Lord. And it was so exciting to see God working and moving and people trusting in him and making new disciples and seeing them join the church. And I stood there in that plaza, that city square, watching our team do this, and I had a pit in my stomach, an incredibly convicting thought, a question that popped into my head. Why aren't we doing this back home? Why can we raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, travel thousands of miles around the world, plan and prepare for months and take a team over to do this, and yet we can't do this in our own backyard? And two months later, I came back, and the church that I was serving at offered me a pastoral position. Now, I had been offered pastoral positions before, and I wasn't interested because I loved what I was doing overseas. But this time they said, we want you to take what you've been doing globally and do it locally. We want you to turn us into a community-focused, outreach-driven, missional church. And my wife and I concluded, this is absolutely where God is leading us. And that's how I became a pastor. And it ultimately has led me here today. So what I want to talk with you about today is how to neighbor. How to neighbor. And I'm sure that you're aware we're in this series or we just wrapped up this series called Be My Neighbor, right? And I need to tell you something about that because it's really amazing how this happened. I started planning this message called How to Neighbor long before I found out that you were gonna do a series called Be My Neighbor. In fact, I had already started preparing the, the, the text and the graphics and doing all of my study, and I sent off all this information to Nathan, your worship pastor, and I got an email back from him that said, you know we're doing a series called Be My Neighbor, right? <laughs> I said, I have no idea. And yet here we are, and it's neat to see how God works like that. So we're going to talk about how to neighbor And maybe some of you wonder, how can I reach across the street? How can I love my neighbors? How can I do this effectively right here in our community? And I can't think of a better time to talk about this, right? This is the time when we need to be talking about how we can love our neighbors no matter what they look like, no matter what culture they come from, no matter how old or how young they are, no matter how different they are from us or how much we don't understand them. We need to love our neighbor. It's easy to say. It's hard to know how to do it but Jesus is going to teach us in this passage we're going to look at this morning. So as we look at Luke chapter 10, I want to set some context for this passage together. And this is really important because this is probably the most misunderstood parable in all of Scripture. And I want want us to understand the context in which Jesus gives this story. It's really important. If we just take the Good Samaritan and we don't take the context, we can completely misunderstand what Jesus is trying to communicate, what his purpose is. So we're going to look at the context, and I need you to do something for me this morning. Are you willing to work with me? Say yes. Yes. Very good. 
So if you're willing to work with me this morning, I need you to transport yourself into the mindset of a first century Jewish person. Can you do that for me? I know it's hard. So I'm going to help you along the way. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to need to transport over there. It's about 6,500 miles is the trip. And I want you to transport with me over to Jerusalem. There's a road that connects Jerusalem and Jericho. And we're going to go there right now together. So you can see here we are at First Free. And we're just going to kind of back up. This is 6,500 miles all the way around the globe. And we're going to zoom in right here. And I want to show you something. Here we are. This is Jerusalem. And there is a winding little road that goes through a wadi, a deep ravine that goes right through here. And this is the city of Jericho. It's an 18-mile journey. You travel down 3,300 feet in elevation. In fact, as we do this, the water supply from Jerusalem starts to go away. And as we travel on this journey, it just becomes desert. Jericho as a city would not exist if it were not for a natural spring that's there allowing for that vegetation that you see and the city to to pop up and flourish there. So there is this long winding road. It's a dangerous, treacherous road that you would not want to get caught on alone. There were caves along the way. There were thieves, robbers along the way, and it's against this backdrop that Jesus is going to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. This is not a road that you want to stop on. This is a dangerous, winding, treacherous road. If you're in Luke chapter 10, we're going to read in verse 25, and I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. So you can read along in whatever version you have. If you have the Version app pulled up on your phone, everything's loaded there. It's even got the correct version there for you, so you can look at that. The reason I like the New Living Translation is because the scholarship behind this version is so incredibly sound and and faithful to the intent of the original languages. So that's what I'm going to use, but you follow along in whatever version you have. We're going to start in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do... To inherit eternal life. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Now I'm going to point out some things about this verse. Okay, first of all, Jesus mentions, or Luke mentions rather, an expert in religious law. Who was this? Well, this was a lawyer. Some of your versions will say a lawyer. But the problem with that word lawyer is it gives us the idea of a secular lawyer today, someone who would go fight a court case. This was an expert in religious law. This was someone who had studied the Old Testament, someone who was part of the religious elite, someone who was educated, who was well-trained. This is a person who came to Jesus with a very specific purpose, and we're going to see what that is. What he does first is he stands up. He stands up because it's a sign of respect. As you would listen to a teacher or a rabbi, everyone would be seated, and before you would ask a question, you would stand up. And if you want to be really respectful, you would use the term teacher, rabbi. I have a question for you. So this man is being respectful, but Luke gives us some extra information. He's not just there to ask a question. He is there to test Jesus. He wants to test him. He wants to trap him. He's going to ask him something that he hopes will divide Jesus' followers because of the inflammatory nature of what Jesus' response is surely going to be. And so he asks. He asks Jesus... What should I do to inherit eternal life? What should I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's an important question. 
In fact, it's the most important question. If you believe that you're going to live somewhere after you die, and most people do, then where you spend that, how you spend that, that's an important question. And it was important in this day. It was the number one question on the hearts and minds of the Jewish people as they remembered back to the book of Daniel, which talked about the fact that we would live eternally either in somewhere good or somewhere bad. And they wanted to know, how do I go somewhere good? What do I have to do, teacher, to earn eternal life? What do I have to do to get it? This is what they wanted to know. Is it doing all the temple stuff? Is it following the Sadducees? Is it following the Pharisees? Is it taking a vow of poverty or celibacy like the Essenes and going and living in the caves somewhere? What do I have to do to go to the good place? What do I have to do to gain eternal life? It was a good question, but Luke tells us it was a trap. This question was a trap. And why is that? How could this such a good question be a trap for Jesus. It's because of this. As the people were talking about this question and wondering how to solve this problem, they had come up with lots of different ideas. And here's what I believe. I believe that this expert in the law asked this question because whatever Jesus said next was sure to divide his followers. Whatever Jesus said in response to that was sure to have many of them saying, that's not what I believe. Forget it. We're not going to follow this guy anymore. And that's what the religious elites were doing. They were trying and working, and we see this in the other gospels as well, to test and trap and divide and fragment Jesus' followers so they would no longer follow him. But look how Jesus responds. Look at how Jesus responds. Look at verse 26. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say How do you read it? I just love that. Jesus answers a question with a question. Jesus knows this man is trying to trap him. He knows what he's doing, and he decides to turn the tables back on him and ask him a question, the same question. He says, you're an expert in the law. You're supposed to know these things. Why are you asking me? Why don't you tell us what you think? Can we just park on that for a moment and appreciate how Jesus is teaching us here how to deal with difficult people? Think about that. Answer a question with a question. If you're dealing with someone difficult, the solution to that is not to defend yourself. It's not to get angry. It's not to fight. Ask a question. And here's something I think we can learn from this. From the life of Jesus, we can learn that if we were all truly Christ-like, we would ask a lot more questions and make far fewer assumptions. Think about that with respect to the culture we're in today what we're seeing on the news. If we were all truly Christ-like, we would ask a lot more questions, learn about other people, get to know other people, invest in them, and make far fewer assumptions. Assumptions are dangerous. And here is Jesus, who is God, who knows everything, who knows exactly why this question is being asked. And instead of responding with the actual answer, which is, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He could have said that. He could have said, I am the way to eternal life. Nothing you do could get you there. But instead, because he knows this man's trying to test him, he answers with a question. Absolutely brilliant. And here's what we read in verse 27. Look at this with me. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. And, this is important, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a good answer. 
This is a really good answer. This man knows the law well. He has summarized it down to the very same thing that Jesus said. We read it earlier in Matthew 22. Jesus said, these are the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is it. This is the correct answer. And so Jesus actually tells him, right. You're right. It's true. This is what you would have to do. Everything in the Bible ultimately falls under those two categories. It either is a part of loving God or it's a part of loving your neighbor. So it's a good answer. And Jesus agrees with him. And you would think this man would be happy that he got it right. But a pit forms in his stomach because he knows there's a problem. What is that problem? The problem is we can't do this. Not perfectly. Not all the time. This is what you would have to do to answer the man's question, what you would have to do to gain eternal life. You would have to live a perfect life from birth to death. You would have to love God with all your heart and all your strength and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly all the time, 100%, or you don't get to go there. That's a problem, but that's the answer. And so Jesus says, right. He says, right. Do this and you will live. Now at this point, the man's answer should have been, I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't do that all the time. But he wants to justify himself. Look at what Luke tells us. He says, he, the man, wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, why does he say that? It's because if all I have to do is love God, all the people around me right now, as I'm asking this question, they know that I'm a pious man. I have studied the law. Surely I love God. They can't question that. But when it comes to loving my neighbor, well, that's another matter entirely. They know better than that. It all depends on who is my neighbor. See, I can love people that are like me. I can love people that look like me, that act like me, that listen to the same music I listen to. I can love people that are similar to me, but when it comes to loving those other people, those different people, if I have to love them, I'm in trouble. And he knows this. So he asks the question, who is my neighbor wanting to justify his actions? And Jesus, in response, tells a story. The story we're going to look at this morning called the Good Samaritan. And this story that Jesus uses as his answer is often one of the most misunderstood parables in Scripture. And here's here's why. Because oftentimes we read this story and we interpret it as being all about the good Samaritan helping the poor hurting man. And so Jesus' message was, we need to help hurting people. And Jesus does want us to help hurting people. Jesus does want us to care for the poor and the needy. These are things that God cares about, absolutely. But that is not why Jesus tells this story. You have to know the context. The question that was asked is, how do I gain eternal life? The reason Jesus is going to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan who helps the man who is lying almost dead on the road and cares for him, even though they are very opposed people, the reason he tells that story is not primarily to tell us we need to reach out to other people in that way. That's a valid application, but that's not the reason he tells the story. The reason he tells the story is to show this expert in the law, this is how good you would have to be all the time if you were to earn eternal life. That's the reason Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. But in the process, Jesus shares what God's idea is for loving our neighbors. 
What does loving your neighbor as yourself look like? Jesus is going to tell us. And the amazing thing is, even though we can't do that on our own, we can't do that perfectly all the time. We have bad days where we just don't feel like doing that, even with people we like, even with our family, let alone people that aren't like us. Jesus, when he When he sends his spirit to live in us and we trust in him for salvation, he empowers us and enables us to live out that life. He makes it possible to be the good, loving neighbor. And Jesus is going to give us eight ways in this story for how to do that. So look with me at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Here is the road that everyone listening to Jesus would be thinking about. That's it. Do you want to go down that road full of caves? The monastery that you see there, that wasn't there at the time. It was just a treacherous, winding road, incredibly dangerous, unsafe And this is a Jewish man, because Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. A Jewish man is traveling down this road, coming home from Jerusalem on his way to Jericho. And now he is lying there on the side of the road near the end of his life. And as a Jewish person, to walk over to this man who is almost dead and touch him in case he is dead, that would make you unclean. You wouldn't want to do that if you were Jewish. You certainly wouldn't want to do that if you were a priest If you were to touch this man who is unclean, you would have to go through ritual cleansing, what's called a mikvah. It's a bath that you'd have to dip down into, and you'd have to do this twice within seven days. And if you failed to do that, you would be cut off from the nation of Israel. This was serious stuff. And this is the context in which Jesus shares this story. So, a man is lying there, beaten on the side of the road. What's going to happen? We read in verse 31, By chance, a priest came along, But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now, this wouldn't have been entirely surprising for people. You might think they would be shocked. A priest? That's like a pastor walking by and not doing anything for this man. But honestly, the priests were not that liked by the people. They were always looking for other things as well. So they were their religious leaders, but they weren't exactly held in high esteem by everyone. Most people knew they were were kind of hypocrites. So this wasn't surprising that a priest would pass by. But then we read, Jesus says in verse 32, a temple assistant or a Levite walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, something interesting that I see in this passage here is that the priest and the temple assistant, the Levite, the word used for the expert in the law earlier in this passage was nomikos, Can you say that for me? Nomikos. Let's try it again. Nomikos. And that word is sometimes used of a priest or someone who worked in the temple who sort of moonlights as an expert in the law. I don't know for sure, but it is possible that the man who asked this question is actually a priest, an off-duty priest. Either way, the expert in the law at this point in the story is not very happy with where things are going. A priest and a temple assistant have now walked by and abandoned this man. And at this point, the audience knows the way these parables work. This is a three-part parable. It's a common format for rabbis of the day. There is a crisis that gets introduced, and then there are three people that are introduced, and the third one is always the hero. 
The third person is always the hero in these parables. So the people are listening to this. And they're thinking, yep, priest walked by. That's, that's expected. Yep. Didn't, didn't, I knew it, those priests. And they're thinking, this guy who asked the question, he's part of their camp. Yeah, tell him, Jesus. Show him. And we know they did this, by the way. We know from other times, like for instance, in the book of Matthew and Mark, where there would be different groups of religious leaders who would, thought it was fantastic when Jesus shut down the other group. So there are probably people listening to this and thinking, yeah, you tell him, Jesus, priest, walked by, temple assistant, Levite, walked by, didn't even help him. The third guy, we know who that's going to be. The third guy is going to be the hero. The third guy is going to be the champion of the people. The third guy is going to be the one whose teaching most aligns with the teachings we hear from Jesus. The third guy is going to be one of these, member, the, these group members who is trying to take the principles of the temple and apply them to the people. The third guy is going to be one of these grassroots warriors who is trying to bring God-fearing obedience to everyone in Israel so that God never has a reason to judge us again. The third man, the hero of the story, surely he is going to be a Pharisee. See, we have this perception of Pharisees as being these horrible, horrible figures who are evil people because we get sound bites about them from what Jesus said. And what he said certainly was true. But you have to understand in this day and age, Jesus attacking the Pharisees was Jesus attacking the good guys. It was Jesus attacking the people who were trying to make all of Israel follow God, at least on an outward perspective. They were hypocrites in that pursuit, but that is almost certainly what the Jewish people thought Jesus was going to say. And look what he does. Then a despised Samaritan. We don't like them. They're not like us. This can't be a Samaritan man. The Samaritans... Every good Jew knows that the Samaritans interbreeded with foreigners. Or maybe they just were foreigners. We're not even 100% sure, but, but we know we don't like them. And they tried to take and make a temple for themselves. And they took parts of our religion and they made it their own religion. And we have barred them from our temple. We have segregated them from us. We don't allow them into our areas. In fact, the priests of this day had actually instructed the people in the temples to pray curses over the Samaritans when they came to celebrate and worship God in the temple. That is how despised these two groups were. And Jesus says a Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And everyone just stopped. You can't be serious. A Samaritan is the hero of this story. And look what this man does. A despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. The first thing I want you to note about how to neighbor is that neighbors don't exclude people who are different. This is a Samaritan man who is the hero of this story and he sees a despised Jewish man from his culture. They don't like each other. This is an enemy and he is going to reach out to him. Neighbors don't exclude people who are different. Number two, neighbors keep their eyes open. Look at this. He saw the man He could have just put his blinders on. He could have just walked on by. He could have not paid attention to him at all. But he saw the man. He looked at him. And so much of our problem with being neighbors in our society is that we just aren't looking. We walk into our homes. We sit in front of our TVs. We kind of do our own thing. We have our own hobbies. And we're not out there looking for the suffering that's in the world. 
We're not out there with our eyes open looking to see who are the people who are being oppressed, who are being marginalized, who are being disrespected, who are being segregated, who are being treated poorly. Who are those people? Are our eyes open to see those people? Neighbors keep their eyes open. He also felt compassion for him. He felt compassion for him. Neighbors have compassion. Not only did he not allow the differences to keep him from helping this man, not only did he keep his eyes open and see this man who was hurting, he felt something for him. And let me say something especially to us men in this room. I know that we're supposed to be macho. And I know we're supposed to be tough. I know we're supposed to just grunt and and hold it off and not allow ourselves to have emotions or feel anything, but there is nothing more manly than being willing to help people who are hurting and feel what they're feeling in the process. It is not a weak thing to care about the poor and the hurting. It takes incredible strength to feel what they feel, to empathize with them, to reach out them, and to help them in their time of need. It is not, it is not, a weak thing. It is a strong thing to have compassion. Neighbors have compassion. Look at the next verse with me. Verse 34. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. I want you to notice a few things here. First of all, he went over to him. He said, going over to him. Neighbors go to the hurting. He didn't ask the hurting man to come to him. And so many times in churches, we want people to come to us, right? We want the hurting to come to us. Come to my church. Come hear my pastor. Come hear our staff. Come see our program. And pastors and programs are good things. But that is not what we are called to do. We are called to go. We are called to get out there. We need to go to the hurting Neighbors go to the hurting. It's good to have everything we do here. But what Jesus says is loving your neighbor is to actually go to them. So the Samaritan then soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine. He bandaged them. That looks bad. We're going to redo that. He bandaged them, put them on his own donkey. Neighbors sacrifice their resources for others in need. See, this olive oil and wine, he was probably bringing these home as supplies for his family. But he used these to soothe the wounds of the man. He almost certainly didn't have bandages with him. He probably took his own clothes and ripped them apart, or a set that he had with him, ripped them into strips and used them to bandage the limbs on this man, to bandage his wounds. It would have been a a horrible, revolting process. This man was beaten almost to death. And yet he gave up of his own resources to help this man. Amazing. He put him on his own donkey. You know what that means? He was walking the rest of the way. He was willing to give this man his donkey, and then he would walk the rest of the way as he was taking care of him. And sometimes we need to be willing to give up of our resources and all of the incredible things that God has blessed us with so that we can help other people and meet their needs. Neighbors sacrifice their resources for others in need. He also took him to an inn. Neighbors bring people to safety. He put the man on his own donkey and he brought him to an inn. He walked with him there. This was a sacrifice for him because he could have made it home by now. But now he's going out of his way to take this man to an inn. And what this makes me think of 
is the issue that we have in our country and around the world with human trafficking. And something that we've been involved with for a while now is working with victims of human trafficking and organizations that help these people and creating safe houses so that individuals who are involved in this horrible practice can have a place to go to be safe, to recover, and to heal from what they have gone through. I just saw a report this week. A new study came out. Over 40 million people are in slavery around this world. And there are slaves right here in St. Louis County and St. Louis City. Did you know that? There is human trafficking happening right here. What are we doing to bring people to safety? What are we doing to reach out to them and provide them with a place where they can heal and where they can recover? Neighbors bring people to safety. Let's go on to verse 35. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Here's what I want you to note about this. The next day, he spent the night. He stayed the whole time with him. Isn't that amazing? He spent the entire time with this man. He stayed there the night, stayed till the next morning. He gave up the idea of going home to be with his family, and he spent the the night with him. And the principle is this. Neighbors sacrifice their time to help others. They sacrifice their time to help others. Now, I know all of us are busy people. We have busy schedules. We have lots of things going on in our lives. We have so many things we need to do. And so even if we have our eyes open, even if we have compassion, it's so easy to say, I'm just gonna bypass this and keep going along because I don't have the time. Here's what I would suggest to you. What if you scheduled the time? What if you planned the time to look for ways to help other people? You say, I don't have anyone that I can help. I don't know anyone that I can help. Schedule the time to go looking. We need to have the margin to be missional in our lives. We need to plan margin into our agenda so that we are intentionally able to go out and see people and have compassion on them and go to them and bring them to safety and care for them and use our resources and our time. It's going to take sacrifice, but it's what we need to do. Neighbors sacrifice their time to help others. Then I want you to see something else here. The innkeeper, he he gives them two silver coins And he tells him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time I'm here. This is critical. Because not only does he pay for this man's debt right away, he offers to pay for his future debts. And here's why that's important. This man, beaten, left with nothing on the side of the road, if he cannot pay his debt after his wounds have healed, he will be sold into slavery because that's how you handled bankruptcy in this day. There was no chapter 11. That was it for him. He was going to become a slave out of this if this man, this Samaritan man, does not pay the slavery debt, the slave-canceling debt for this Jewish man. Think about that. Neighbors anticipate the needs of others. He knew the danger this man was still in, and he offered to care for his future needs. I've gone through some hospitality training with people that train really, really luxury hotels like the Ritz-Carlton and Hilton and, and uh, really neat places like that. Good, good high-quality restaurants like Chick-fil-A, you know, one of my favorites. And some of the people that do that training have come into places where I've happened to be and I've been able to listen to them. And you know what one of the number one principles is for hospitality? Anticipate the needs of others and meet them before they know they need it. 
When we were doing our missions ministry, we cultivated a relationship with a great hotel and they gave us really good rates and they cared for us and they wanted to get updates from us while we were on our mission trips. It was so cool. And we would come back and we just needed to eat a meal in a conference room there. And you're not allowed to bring in food, but we couldn't afford to do catering or anything like that. So we just called them up and said, hey, is it okay if we just bring some pizzas into the conference room? We'll be really careful. And is that all right with you? And they said, not only can you do that, but could we bring you some plates and silverware and napkins and bottles of water as well? They anticipated our needs and they met them before we even knew we had them. What would it look like if we did that in our neighborhoods? What would it look like when your neighbor was going on vacation? You said, hey, can I water your flowers and mow your lawn while you're gone? What would it look like if you anticipated the needs of other people and cared for them? We do this in our hospitality training in our churches now. We teach our hospitality teams to look for those people that are kind of doing this because they have no idea what they're doing. It's exactly what I've been doing this week. I have no idea where, I I had to ask people the other day, how do I get down to Kid Connection? (laughs) I don't know how to get there. What we want to do is anticipate the needs of other people and meet them before they know they have them. And this is what the Samaritan did. He knew what was going to happen. He was thinking ahead and he cared for this man. He kept him from slavery. Here's how Jesus ends. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. He wouldn't even say the Samaritan man, the one who showed him mercy. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Now go and do the same. Now the original question was, what can I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, for you to have eternal life, you would have to love your neighbor like this perfectly all the time. And by the way, your neighbor includes those people you don't like. And so the answer to this parable for this man should have been, I can't do this, Jesus. I can't do this on my own. And I think Jesus would have responded and said, I know that's the point. It is me doing it through you. And for you to gain eternal life, you can't do that. You have to trust in me. I am the way, nothing else. That's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And yet Jesus teaches us how to love our neighbors in the process. One of the questions that has been raised many times here is what do we do about the division that we experience in this city? I'm just down the road from Charlottesville. We have a lot of division there too. And in my city in Lynchburg, Virginia, where I'm at right now, a lot of division there. I get that. What do we do? What is the answer? How do we fix this? And the truth is we can't fix this. We can't solve it. But saying that we can't fix it and not doing anything are two very different things. We can't fix it, but we know someone who can. We can't solve this problem, but we represent someone who absolutely can solve this problem. And he has said that you and I are his ambassadors to go be ministers of reconciliation with people to reconcile them to God. The answer to our question today and the answer to this expert's question is exactly the same. The answer is Jesus. The answer is the gospel. The answer is the grace of God that takes people who have hated each other for decades, people groups that have hated each other for centuries, and turns them into brothers. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can take enemies and turn them into brothers. And so as we close today, I'm gonna ask you all to close your eyes with me. Just bow your heads, close your eyes, and think about this. We know the solution. Here's the question. Will you be the neighbor that God wants you to be? 
Will you be obedient to Christ's command to love your neighbor as yourself, knowing that it requires sacrifice, knowing that it means cutting some of the things out of your schedule, knowing that it means giving up some of your resources? Are you willing to be that kind of neighbor to step out? If you're willing to neighbor like Jesus said, would you do something for me? And please don't do this unless you really mean it. If you're willing to do this, would you just stand right now? Don't open your eyes, keep your eyes closed. If you're willing to be the kind of neighbor that Jesus said by his strength and his power to love others with the kind of sacrifice that it takes to sacrifice your resources and your time, would you stand right now just between you and God to say, yes, God, I am going to be that kind of neighbor. I am going to love people like that. Don't do it unless you mean it. This is a commitment between you and God. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you are standing right now and saying, yes, God, I am going to love people like you told us to love, and I can only do it through you, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Would you get into your mind the name of one person that you're going to neighbor this week? Who is it that God has placed on your heart that you need to reach out to? that you need to connect with, that you need to sacrifice for, to build a relationship with, to share the love of Christ with them so that you can then show the gospel of Jesus Christ to. You are his ambassadors. You are his ministers of reconciliation. You can be seated, but would you keep your eyes closed for a moment? You can be seated. Thank you. Eyes still closed. No one's looking around. You may be listening to this today and thinking, This is so different to me. I just walked in and I have no idea what you're doing. Senior pastor vote what? What does that even mean? And if this is new to you, and if you're thinking, I don't have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't have him working through me to empower this. I don't really like a lot of other people right now. I don't even like myself. How could God possibly be okay with me? I want to tell you the same thing that the expert in the law was asking, but not truly seeking. Jesus is the only way to have a right relationship with God. Jesus is the only answer to the pain and the void that you are experiencing right now. And I believe that his Holy Spirit is working in your heart to draw you to him and to convict you of your sin, your wrongdoing. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay a penalty that you could never pay because you could never earn eternal life. Jesus Christ is the only way by trusting in him that you can have a restored relationship with God, that he can take away your sin and give you a new life and put his spirit in you and empower you and enable you to live the kind of life that he wants you to live. And I don't know if there's anyone like that in the room right now. There may not be. But if there is, and you would like to know more about having a relationship with Jesus Christ, at the end of our service today, you'll have an opportunity to come forward and talk to someone. And I would like to talk with you. And our counselors would like to talk to you. And we would like to introduce you to Jesus Christ and share how you can have a relationship with him. Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for you, Lord. We are thankful for the example that you gave, for the stories that you told, and the meaning that they have. I pray that you would equip us and empower us to be neighbors to everyone around us, even those who are very different from ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.